Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to the latest episode of Observations, a Observations, which will be as as deeply sci-fi uh, uh, focused as, as anything uh, I've done ever in a long time. And the reason for that is, is Dune. Dune, all of the different versions of Dune will be uh, dissected, analyzed, uh, 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 pretty much praised. Um, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those, uh, one of those recipients of all things Dune that is appreciative of that. Actually, that's not true. The, the sci-fi miniseries was it on sci-fi. I, I didn't like that. So, but, but we will absolutely be, uh, discussing Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Um, J- Josh Brolin of all people is, is the first person who taught me that his name is not Dennis. It's Denis. I had not seen any press with him. Even though I was seeing his movies, whether it was, uh, you know, uh, Sicario or Prisoners, I, I had never seen anything with him um, and uh, an interview and did not know that his name was not Dennis because I looked at it and, and, and Josh only refers to him as Denis. And then now I see everyone. I, I thought it was a special, like, <laughs> I thought it was like the way that, like, that they have a special friendship and he speaks his name in the truth. But no, it's Denis, Denis Villeneuve. Okay, I, I, I have asked, so I, I hope I'm pronouncing it uh, correctly. I have asked repeatedly. Uh, it, it's just like when it was, is it, is, it, is it Kevin Feige? Is it Kevin Feige? Is it, you know, trust me. Uh, is it Feige? You know, there was years. Now, here's the deal. I understand this. My last name is Leifeld, which has also been pronounced Lefeld, Leifield, um, Leifield. Uh, I've, I've gotten it all in my uh, in my many years of hearing my last name butchered. It's the one thing I w- I felt bad about giving my kids uh, my last name because I knew they were going to have a lifetime of uh, uh, Luke uh, uh, Lafield. No, it's not Lafield. It's it's just pronounced like it's spelled L I E F E L D Liefeld. But everybody thinks it's a clever spelling. So Denis, I hope I don't have to say your name, uh, but mispronounce it much during this podcast, but, uh, we're just going to call you Denny, uh, for most of the rest of the podcast, because we're going to praise the shit out of the movie that you made Dune. Unbelievable. But, but prior to Dune, there was, of course, uh, David Lynch's Dune, which we're going to discuss, but we're going to give a lot of ink to a version of Dune that did, in fact, use a lot of ink, which is the Marvel Comics adaptation of Dune, uh, which was brilliantly, and we're going to say another name, who, and this guy knows, he knows all about it. Marvel even did a pronunciation of his name in the comics once so that you would know how to pronounce Bill Sienkiewicz because Bill Sienkiewicz, who, I got to be honest, may be the most talented guy in comics, the most all-around, there isn't anything he doesn't do and there isn't anything that he doesn't do exceptionally. And one of those things that he did exceptionally was the Dune comic book adaptation that Marvel Comics uh, produced. And there are some great stories in regards to how all of that uh, came about. There's some behind the scenes. And, and, and again, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of nuts and bolts and, and, and different, um, you know, uh, uh, widgets and gadgets that go into making an adaptation. But I am telling you right now, that uh, you won't need to get to the end of this podcast for me to tell you to buy, if you can, 
the Marvel Comics adaptation of Dune, illustrated by Bill Sienkiewicz. I believe Ralph Macchio, uh, yes, pronounced like the actor, but I saw Ralph Macchio, the comic book writer, years before I learned of Ralph Macchio, the Karate Kid, Outsiders, It Is Enough actor. Ralph Macchio actually wrote some of my favorite comics. If you've listened to this podcast uh, over the the last couple of years, uh, if you have heard me bring up the extended Marvel two in one Marvel two in one run that brought you Project Pegasus, uh, it brought you the Serpent Crown affair. Uh, Ralph was a co writer co writer on that series with his friend Mark Grunewald. for For years, they wrote everything together. Eventually, Grunewald stepped out on his on his own and did this. Like I mean, I, I mean, a decade or more on on Captain America, an extended run where he flexed. He wrote wrote his own comics, but some of my favorite comics that were published were published by Ralph Macchio and Mark Grunewald. Macchio Grunewald was a winning combination on Marvel Two and One uh, stories that stand up with the best of everything Marvel did during the Bronze Age. They even did a three issue uh, Moon Dragon Warlock um, uh, 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 story. I mean, th- these guys did some fantastic comic books. So Ralph uh, was was picked to be the writer. I think he wanted to write. The adaptation, so um, you know he, which means he took the screenplay of the David Lynch Dune and uh, ad, ad, adapted it to, uh, you know, for Bill to illustrate and to create this seminal, amazing, one of the very best you're ever going to see adaptations, and and it also marks um, a certain period a certain uh, era where comic book adaptations had shifted. And, and and we'll get into that as we get into the creation of that. But we're not even having a Dune podcast if we're not talking about uh, the, the, the Denis Villeneuve's amazing, staggering achievement that is the cinematic 2021 release of Dune. <clears throat> I saw it on IMAX. I read this morning that so many people saw it on large screens, which is great. I think there was definitely a chorus. And and today, I'll be honest, I'm... I'm I, if you think that I tweet things with authority, you would be wrong. I hate telling people or strongly suggesting people what to do. We live in a world now <clears throat> where we are constantly being uh, told what to do. And nobody is um, subtle about the ways that they pivot us towards certain decisions. Everyone's always... Push, it just seems like push, 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 push. Do this. Watch this. You should do this. I recommend this. Uh, I certainly don't ever want to shame anybody into uh, into you know participating in in art because really art is so subjective. In art that I like, any more that I'm going to uh, you know be able to push you to root for my sports team when you have a sports team of your own, okay? Or you have a favorite actor of your own. But but when it came to Dune. I feel like the community, the sci-fi community, the pop culture, the <clears throat> everybody uh, really understood the stakes with this. And and what I what I didn't tweet is, hey, go see it so we get a sequel. Uh, that that's beyond all of our decision makings. That'll come down to two people in a room and statistics that we're not privy to. So I I, I don't believe I did anything along those lines. I urged people, and it was with hesitation that I did it, but I really feel that this movie and Denise amazing accomplished vision, uh, should be pursued in theaters because of the streaming component 
of it being on HBO Max at the same time. I am guilty as charged of seeing a number of the HBO Max movies only on HBO Max and not going to the theaters. Uh, but the big stuff, Kong Godzilla, Suicide Squad, Mortal Kombat, I'm going to theaters and I'm going to see that. But I really felt like this is the biggest release. Uh, this is the mo- it, it feels like the biggest investment that Warner Brothers had in a really long time. And I wanted to help get a win for this property as much as we possibly could, as, as much as we, uh, as, 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 as we could muster. And so I am guilty as charged as early as Tuesday of last week of, of telling people, go see it in the theater, go see it in the theater. If you possibly can, if you feel comfortable, see it on the biggest screen possible. And, and what worked out, it looks like is that, uh, uh almost 10 million of the $40 million dollars, uh, based on the, the statistics that I was reading this morning, was done from the large format screens from the IMAX uh, dollars. And uh, I went on Friday with some buddies, and uh, Irvine, uh, here in Irvine, uh, they opened it, I think, in 1996. So it's been uh, around a long time. It is the biggest uh, IMAX screen in Southern California. I did some really aggressive Googling because my friends from LA who came down to see it with me had uh, seen Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi on, uh, on this IMAX screen and they were like, wow, we forgot how big this screen is. I had seen some movies with these guys uh, several years back. Obviously, Irvine is 20 minutes from me. I, I, when they put this, the, uh, the, the Irvine um, you know, uh, walk up, it was a huge deal to Orange County, and 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 they've only added onto it and increased its um, real estate, its its uh, its square footage over the years. It is just a, it is an absolute, uh, I mean, literally like a, a monstrosity of of a property with all sorts of retail. But that Regal Theater and that particular IMAX has always um, been the largest. Uh, in, 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 in our area. And, uh, as more and more IMAX theaters open up, I'm always curious as to how big they are. Now, I'm sure some of you guys are, are, <laughs> are familiar with the term LIMAX. I love that. I love when people just, I mean, overnight LIMAX, are you seeing it on an IMAX screen? Or are you seeing it on a LIMAX screen? So LIMAXs are kind of faux IMAX screens. They're a little bigger than your average, uh, movie screen, which I guess qualifies them for being, you know, kind of a mini or a baby IMAX. And that's really what, what, um, so many of them are. I mean, they, they added IMAX screens to all of the multiplexes around me over the last couple of years, but none of them are, uh, are on par with the Irvine IMAX. And, and so, uh, my buddies were like, oh yeah, we, we forgot how enormous this was. So again, I went to some aggressive Googling, to find out if this was indeed the largest. And so from San Diego to San Francisco, the Irvine IMAX is absolutely 100% uh, the biggest. It says it's eight stories tall. I was telling everyone it was four stories tall, but this thing, they're saying it's eight stories tall. And now I'm like, yeah, I, I guess I can see that. Because, um, you know, there, there are times when during Dune, it would like pivot to just like a space scene and, and ships going through space that I would like reach out with my fingers and be like, okay, if there's a dude standing down there on that platform and they're six feet tall, how many six feet tall people can I pile on each other's shoulders? And how many, can, I think I can get like 13. And so how would that transfer to floors? And again, I was, I, I'm like all sold that it's four, four and a half stories tall, but I read, you know, in, 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 in my relentless Googling, um, 
you know, because there's some people who are like, well, I think the one at Universal City Walk. No, it's not. It is not. It, there is no evidence. Um, they give the sizes, the measurements. Um, there's a San Francisco IMAX that is legit bigger than this Irvine one. I don't know about the East Coast. I don't know about New York City. I just know that this one that we see in Irvine here in Orange County is the big, badass IMAX screen. So me and my buddies saw it on Friday afternoon and uh, nestled into our seats. And I swear to you, it just felt like we were hovering above the story the entire time when you see something that, again, is purportedly eight stories tall. You feel it. It's immersive. You are above all of these amazing visuals and you are inside, you know, Timothy Chalamet's nose or, or, or you are part of the follicles on, on Jason Momoa's face, right? I mean, um, it, the, the, the detail, the, 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 the picture, it is just, it was amazing. And, and so many people are going to tell you about the sound design and, and, uh, and the sound design, the rumbling, the all of the, I will not do a tribal scream here. I'm almost going to do it, but you're, you're not going to get it out of me. Uh, and you guys can already tell I'm wrestling with some sort of raw throat today. So you're definitely not going to get the tribal scream for me. But this, um, this, this, uh, the, the, the sound design along with this amazing picture, obviously Denis is an amazing visualist. And I would watch Dune and may have uh, this weekend watched Dune with the sound off for a while. Because once I've given, you know, I gave at the box office, I gave my, I bought, I bought two tickets. We, we spent 50 bucks. The Liefeld family gave Dune 50 bucks. I feel good about my, you know, contribution. We also have HBO Max. So once I've seen it, I'm not going to see it at home. Now, again, I got to be honest. I was totally uh, as, as great and crisp and as brilliant as my TV is. And I have a brand new high tech 80 inch Okay, surround sound. Because some guy, I was when I was telling people, like I said, when I was telling people, urging them to see it in in the biggest screen as possible. Of course, you're going to get brushback. And I, you know, Twitter doesn't always get under my skin. I've gotten really good at navigating like the twats on Twitter. But uh, you know, Friday night when I was praising it, um, a guy who had just the earliest box office reporting said. Uh, you're, you're saying this movie's spectacular. It's only going to make 30 million, LOL. And I literally, I deleted it, but I was like, do you feel bigger now? Do you, you, are you, you stand a little taller, you know? Yeah, you feel like a big man? I, I put out that I like something and you immediately rushed to mock uh, that I liked it and diminished it because it's not going to make a ton of money based on this preliminary report. Well, I then was like, what are you doing? Don't do this, delete this, delete this interaction. And I got rid of it. Uh, you know, the great thing is the movie, the word of mouth, the urging, like I said, the, I, I think everybody in the hardcore sci-fi, uh, pop culture, whatever, you know, cinematic, uh, cinematic, uh, you know, uh, diehards, cinephiles completely went bonkers trying to urge people that you should see this on a screen. And I think it worked. I think word of mouth worked. The deadline.com report said that, there was such that that that, that uh, Dune uh, purchases of tickets in IMAX and across the board were done at such a late date. Thursday and Friday shows were being bought at the last minute, which means people were reading, they were curious, they were they were they were leering, uh, they were hearing the cacophony of voices. They were crying out to go see this on a big screen and they decided, let's do it, let's do it, let's hit that button, let's let's buy that ticket, let's let's swipe that um that purchase on our phone and let's get to the theater. 
And that's the thing, that's the one cool thing about all the technology we have at our, you know, fingertips now is that, you know, you know, when, um, when things click on, I have a buddy who works at one of the streaming, uh, services and he says it is so exciting when they debut new shows, when new shows drop. And he says, you can be sitting on the other end of that data bank and watch those bars just roar across the screen as you know, all of the interactions and all of the usages is measured immediately. So it's it's great that, that they can actually tell you that things broke late on Thursday and Friday and that and and that the theater owners can tell you that, you know, they sold a bunch of tickets 20 minutes, a half hour before screen time. And that is, again, word of mouth, reaching people, um, empowering people to go out and to give Dune a shot. If you saw Dune um, in the theater, and I'll, I'll finish up also on screen, the other tweet... When I told people to go see it, a guy's like, oh, I've got an 80-inch 80, 80 uh, TV Liefeld. I'm good here at home. And I'm like, dude, I have the same, okay? I have a very nice home theater experience. I have giant recliner leather seats. Um, you know, we, we, we can comfortably fit eight people in recliners that are as nice as anything that you're going to see experience in a movie theater. Mine are nicer. I got to be honest, mine go back further and they're more comfortable, okay? And it's still not good. The, the, the IMAX version of Dune was incredible. I literally was suspended high above um, this amazing uh, eight-story depiction of this incredible, uh, uh, incredibly directed, incredibly um, imagined uh, uh, version of this epic sci-fi saga with killer set design, sound design, costuming, um, you know, visualization, visual effects, performances, performances, the cast, holy crap, this cast is is out of this world. Josh Brolin, Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Jason Momoa. I mean, come on, this thing is just a phenomenal, the, the, the enti- this cast is one for the ages. And uh, uh, Dave Bautista, um, I mean, I, I, I was just absolutely... Uh, just floored and and Denise shoots everybody so beautifully that you want to make love to everyone in in on the movie You're like oh, I I'm, I want to get with Josh I you know I want to get with Jason oh I want to definitely get with Timothy Timothy I mean it, 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 Timothy Chalamet has got a face this kid has a face like like Tom Cruise had a face and it's going to carry his career we talked about this in in recent episodes Angelina Jolie has a face that looks good eight stories tall okay and just like Paul Newman just like Robert Redford. That stuff matters. That stuff matters. That makes movie stars. We give our money to movie We just openly just give money to movie stars. Boom, 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 boom. Because we fall in love with their look, their their charisma, their performances, okay? And uh, man, Timothy Chalamet, that is a face. That is a freaking face. And all that um, hair. If you've watched my work, if you've seen my work at all over the 35 years that I've been producing comics, you know that I love floppy bangs of hair, okay? And if there is someone who is currently rocking floppy bangs of hair, okay? <laughs> Let's say it all together. Floppy bangs of hair. If if someone is rocking the floppy bangs of hair better than Timothy Chalamet, I would like you to show me who that person is. I don't believe that person exists. I uh, excel at floppy bangs of hair. Um, it, uh, all of my characters at some point experience them. If you bought my version of... Archie Comics, The Shield, this last summer, he had floppy bangs of hair. Shatterstar has floppy bangs of hair. Uh, Shaft has floppy bangs of hair. Cable has been known to have floppy bangs of hair. No one has floppy bangs of hair. 
that are as enticing and will mesmerize you more than Chalamet. Okay, honestly, and I, Timothy Chalamet, maybe someday you make a comic book movie, maybe not, maybe it's one of mine, maybe not, but um, I kind of feel like you should just drop the Timothy and just be called Chalamet, okay? Um, Chalamet is rad. It's a great name. We all understand how to pronounce it. We don't need an ad in Marvel Comics, you know, saying Bill Sinkevich, sounding it out for us, phonically showing us how to pronounce it. We have already, we've already, we're already conditioned. We know you, man. We've seen your films. We know it's Chalamet, okay? Not to be con- confused with Shalimar, the epic R&B band um, uh, uh, of the 80s um, who, who sang the second time around one of their biggest hits, okay? Not to be confused with Shalimar. We have Chalamet, Chalamet. Honestly, what a visage, what a face. What, what I mean, the camera loves you. The camera loves this guy and Denis shoots him better than ever. Same with Rebecca Ferguson. I, we've all been wowed by Re- Rebecca Ferguson. Uh, the last time I saw Rebecca Ferguson on IMAX was Rogue Nation because my buddy was like, what's the last movie you've seen here? And in the years since I have, I am embarrassed to say, been going to more, okay, big gulp, gulp. Uh, I've seen more IMAX screens than I've seen IMAX screens because they're more convenient. It's like, hey, we made this, this, we made this screen six feet taller than the normal one. We qualified for an IMAX. So, you know, and it's two minutes from my house. Um, they opened a badass new killer state-of-the-art theater just down the street from me. They rock a Limax. They rock two Limax screens. But you know what? When you go to the mothership and you go to Irvine and you go see that, I mean, my buddy, they, they were like, you are going to climb steps. You are going to go up. You're going you're gonna to walk up like five stories to sit above that eight-story screen. So anyway, seeing it on the big screen, uh, I've seen it on my, you know, HD, uh, 4K television with my surround sound, and it did not, um, it did not hold up. Can I, can I pause? But the the the, adba- the advantage of now watching Dune in IMAX and then rushing home and then watching it on HBO Max until I go back and see it and give them another fifty dollars, which I will. It will be sometime between this podcast and the next one that I record. I guarantee you, I will be going to see. Dune again, but in the meantime, can I pause? Can I pause on those floppy bangs? Can I pause on Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho? Maybe my favorite uh, visual depiction of a character. Uh, good God, and I, I don't know years. I mean, years. We're talking. You know, maybe the last time I was this like amped about somebody was uh, was you know Aragorn uh, on, on in, in in Lord of the Lord of the Rings films. You know, almost twenty. No, absolutely twenty years ago. But. Uh, you know, Momoa as Duncan Idaho is something to behold. Oh my gosh, he is just fantastic. He steals every scene he's in, whether he's just chatting it up, whether he's, um, you know, uh, engaging in, in 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 the understanding of tribal uh, rituals. Uh, and and uh, I, gosh, his name escapes me right now. I, I just see him as Anton Shigur, but he has a, a real actor name. But I really enjoyed uh, the performance of 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 of. The, the guy who was Anton Shigur in, uh, in, in no country. Um, but, but yeah, uh, uh, he and Momoa, I mean, all of the chemistry that they, that they share on screen is, is fantastic. So the visual, the costuming, I mean, the piping, the lining, uh, just, just the different designs of the outfits, uh, uh just the Harkonnens. Um, I mean, the, the, the these, uh, 
Dune is fantastic. I, I hope that you see it. I hope you saw it in the theater. I hope that that we can continue to move you towards that. But the cool thing about um, the cool thing about uh, 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 Dune is 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 the concepts uh, and 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 the uh, and the visual representation of the characters. And this goes back as far again as uh, as as I mean, obviously the book. I read the book in 1984. It was a push. It was hard. I wanted to get out in front of the material. I'd never heard of it until I heard that it was going to be a movie. So, you know, I was 16 years old, wanted to participate, wanted to get out in front of this, knew it was sci-fi. I heard that it had inspired George Lucas um, with Star Wars, which obviously if you saw it, you can see all the ways that that indeed happened. That's not the subject of this uh, particular podcast. You could, I, I could, I could hold in uh, uh, an entire podcast on, on, and, and, and apparently Frank, uh, Herbert, who who you know obviously authored Dune, uh, made a list of 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 ways that he felt George Lucas took from his book. But also, you know, George is always. It's like I was telling my wife, he he wears his influences on his sleeve. That's where I I kind of learned to live, wear my influences on my sleeve too. He's like, I took this from World War II movies. I took this from um, Hidden Fortress, from Kurosawa. I obviously took this from from Herbert, from Dune. Um, you know, I mean, a year after Dune comes out. Uh, or the year, uh, roughly within six months' time, Claremont is putting sandworms in the New Mutants. I mean, Art Adams is drawing sandworms in the New Mutants annual when they go to Asgard. I mean, I've talked about this before. Chris Claremont would walk out of Aliens and he would put an H.R. Geiger-inspired monster in the pages of the X-Men that was coming out, uh, you know, six months later. He would walk out of a cinematic experience. He would walk out of the Warriors. Warriors come out to play. He would walk... <laughs> I mean, uh, he, he, he would walk out of um, Escape from New York and immediately incorporate, like, Days of Future Past. Uh, kisses a little bit of warriors come out to play in the way that the gangs that assault Wolverine look and the, the, the surrounding, um, the, the way the future looks, looks like Escape from New York. I mean, this is not um, an accident. Chris was completely influenced by stuff that he enjoyed and he immediately would find ways to incorporate that into the X-Men. I did the same thing. I still do the same thing. I did it on X-Force. I did it on Youngblood. We all kind of take what we like. I'm sure there's a bunch of people who experienced Dune for the very first time this weekend who you are now going to see turn that influence around and give it to you in their science fiction. Guaranteed that's that's happening. But I mean, the uh, I got to tell you, the the visual representation of the Emperor's Sardaukar, uh, uh army was just next level crazy bonkers. I was off the charts. Like I could not believe. And I, I even said to my wife, like, like, you know, they're all in white, except they have those long blades. We are the emperor's blades, the Sardaukar. I mean, and, and the fact that you'll see Duncan Idaho takes on a whole, whole lot of them in the book, in the book, it says he single-handedly, uh, took on 19 Sardaukars who are, uh, again, the emperor's blades, the finest warriors, but Duncan Idaho, and they hit this in one sentence. You got to, one of the Harkonnens, you know, comment about how the Atreides army has been trained, you know, by, by both Gurney Halleck and Duncan Sardaukar, who, I mean, Duncan Idaho. And, and Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck were, the, were such formidable, um, you know, militant combatants, trainers, uh, sword masters that, 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 you know, the Harkonnens had to go and ask for battalions of 
the Harkonnens had to go and ask for battalions of the Emperor's Sarkadar army or elite, you know, soldiers to, to help them. And I, I turned to my wife and I'm like, come on, what's more, what's more intimidating, the Sarkadar army uh, or, or the Imperial stormtroopers? Okay. I mean, come on. Is there even a comparison here? I don't think so. Um, so, so the visualization, the worms, uh, the Fremen, uh, just all of the different characters, the, 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 just all of the different design aspects of Dune have always been something that reached out and really dictated to, um, it, it, it was a fever that you go, you go back to, um, the earliest, um, Je Je oh, man, I hope I say his name right. I always screw it up, but they have a great, um, uh, uh, they, they, they have a great, uh, documentary Jordakowski's Dune and how Jordakowski was going to make this and how he hired Mobius uh, to do all the designs and and again that documentary is worth seeing alone for just all of the art they're going to show you all of the designs all of the elaborate Mobius illustrations and look Dune is a great visual feast and it, and it is a great visual feast under David Lynch too David Lynch's Dune, that's an entire other history of, 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 uh, kind of disappointment. Um, and, and here's the deal the, the funny thing is, you know, George Lucas met with David Lynch. I'm not sure if you know this, so we can, you know, keep dancing with, uh, with, um, with, with, with Star Wars and matching it up against, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dune and, and, and how they and how they uh, and how they both intersect and, and absolutely how Dune was 100% influential on, on George. But um, David Lynch came forward uh, and, 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 and was, was telling everybody who would listen, uh, you know, how because he was a filmmaker that was really coming up. And, and his, his visual style, David Lynch's visual style had gotten a lot of people's attention. Of course, George Lucas was looking for somebody to direct his final installment of Star Wars. So he uh, reached out to, uh, <clears throat> to David Lynch. And David Lynch famously uh, tells the story because it, this is, um, you know, David was nominated at the time for his work in The Elephant Man which was, again, just very visually arresting. And you could tell David Lynch had cinematic chops to spare. I mean, this guy is, if you followed his work, I've seen everything he has ever done. And there are days I am just longing to go back and watch his 2017 return to Twin Peaks, which was um, some of the most amazing, demanding, psychedelic, um, just visually arresting work he's ever done. And it was, it was long and it was many episodes and it was great and it was over. I literally cried because the original Twin Peaks was such a lightning bolt. Um, it, 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 it was so, uh, it became the coffee, uh, uh, the water cooler show of its time. And I remember not a lot of my friends were watching Twin Peaks. I was the only one watching Twin Peaks and I was trying to get everybody I knew to watch Twin Peaks. Um, because I knew that, it, that I, I needed people to share it with. And of course, this is again before internet, social media. You didn't get to just boot up your 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 device and reach out and have an international audience that you could share this with. You had to have people to talk to it with. And my friends were not watching Twin Peaks. So I was like literally watching it alone. I was, I was on my way. I remember flying to Oakland WonderCon that year, uh, 1990. 
and uh, 8990 and, and Time Magazine had done the Twin Peaks was the cover story about this phenomenon, this word of mouth water cooler show. So David Lynch always has had the chops and George Lucas recognized it early on and asked to meet with David. So David goes to see uh, George Lucas at Lucasfilm, you know, up in Northern California. And uh, in George, in David's own word, David Lynch says, I was asked by George to come up. And, and the way David would say this is, I was asked by George to come up and see him and talk to him about directing what would be the third Star Wars. If you've heard David Lynch, you know that's exactly how he would say it, maybe even more obnoxiously, because he's rad like that. But, um, so I won't do that. <laughs> I won't do that anymore. Um, uh, uh, he said, I had zero interest, okay? <laughs> but I always admired George. George is a guy who does what he loves, and I do what I love. The difference is what George loves makes hundreds of billions of dollars. So I thought I should at least go up and visit with him. And it was an incredible visit. This is David Lynch's own words, okay? I am, uh, I am, uh, you know, reading, uh, you know, from David's, again, firsthand account that he gave of, of, of this, this meeting that he had with George. Uh, Lynch then told George, you should direct this film. You should direct this yourself and uh, reflect your own vision of what you want out of this third installment in your saga. And uh, David, uh, you know, said like the secrecy alone around just meeting with George was was just giving him an inclination of how how much that he was going to have to deal with. And uh, and uh, he he said uh, just to just to meet with George. David Lynch had to go to a building in Los Angeles first. He had to get a special credit card handed to him, which he then received special keys. This is in David's words. I am reading to you David Lynch's words. Then a letter arrived, and in that letter was a map. David Lynch went to the airport and flew up to Northern California. A rental car was ready for me, keys in the ignition. Everything was set. David Lynch gets in the car, he drives to the office, and out comes George. George then talks with him a little bit, and he says, I want to show you something. George Lucas says, I want to show you you something. Lynch continues, right about this time, I started getting a bit of a headache. He goes, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, and it says he laughs here. George took him upstairs. Now, again, he goes to a building, he gets a special credit card. He's given special keys. A letter arrives. It has a map. He goes to the airport. There's a rental car. There's keys. And then he drives, follows the map, drives to the office. George appears. So, I mean, David has gone through some subterfuge. Uh, George has put him through a bit of the ringer here, right? So he then says he's getting a headache. George takes him upstairs. And then again, continuing in David's words. And he showed me these things called Wookiees. Now my headache's getting even stronger. David Lynch says, he said he showed me many animals and many different things. Then he took me in a ride in his Ferrari for lunch. And George is kind of short. So he had the seat back and he was almost laying down in the car. We were flying through this little town up in Northern California. We go to a restaurant. Not that I don't like salads, but all that they had was salads, says David Lynch. 
then it, I, I got I got a really almost like a migraine headache. Lynch says, and I couldn't wait to get home. Even before I got home, I crawled into a phone booth. I called my agent and said, "There's no way." I'll do this as Dave. There's no way. There is no way I can do this, says David Lynch. His agent says, David, David, calm down, calm down. You don't have to do this. So again, I'm speaking directly from David Lynch. He says, George, bless his heart, uh, took my call the next day. And I said that I won't be directing this film. He should. Um, David Lynch says, George invented everything about Star Wars. He doesn't really love directing, so that's why he has other people direct the films. But I called my lawyer and told him that I wasn't going to do it. And he said, okay, you don't know how many millions of dollars you just lost. But okay, David. So um, this reason I'm telling you this story is that David says, shortly following this, he was approached by Dino De Laurentiis. Now, kids my age associate Dino De Laurentiis most with the 1976 King Kong film. There was a marketing push behind that film like none I'd ever seen prior. That's two years earlier than Star Wars. I was a very visual pop culture kid. Um, I was going to movies. My, my parents were taking me to the Apple Dumpling Gang and the animated Robin Hoods. Um, you know, my, my mom wanted to see Kramer versus Kramer and some dramas. So they, they didn't have a baby babysitter. So I was being dragged to that crap too. I mean, that's a great movie, but as a kid, I'm like, why am I seeing this divorce drama? Um, and, uh, but, but, but in the movie theaters, in, in, on the magazines, uh, full page ads in people magazine life, that King Kong painting of him with a foot on each of the world trade centers, holding a giant plane and Jessica Lang in his other hand, that was a visceral moment. I've talked to you guys about groups that I'm in that with, with kid, people who are my age and we all go, Oh my gosh, that King Kong would be well, it had Dino De Laurentiis, you know, splattered all across it. Dino De Laurentiis, King Kong. He was this Uber producer. He had gotten the rights to Dune and he was contacting David Lynch about doing Dune with him. And so uh, David was challenged. He said he it felt like this was throwing him out of his comfort zone and it had a giant budget. So um, I think, you know, David Lynch says here that um, because he had turned down George, he thought, well, maybe I should should dabble in sci-fi and do this dune job um and uh and and we all know that 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 what happened instead is that that uh is is what what happened instead is that is that is is that david lynch did not end up uh doing uh you know doing the the dune movie that he wanted there was constant battles, budgetary differences of vision with Dino De Laurentiis once he finally uh, uh, signed on. And and uh, that film does not, he himself, David Lynch, says he hates it. So like when people bring it up, people go, why are you even talking about a movie that the director hates? Okay, I can't tell you why he hates it. All I can do is judge what I'm given. And right now, um, you can also go watch David Lynch's Dune because HBO brilliantly has them paired up. You can watch Denise Dune and then go watch, you know, 1984, uh, David Lynch's version of Dune. Now here's the deal. David Lynch's Dune looks great. There is amazing visual representation. 
uh, all of the costuming uh, in-house Atreides, the Harkonnens, the Baron, um, the Fremen, they look pretty great. The, 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 I mean, it's, it's really, uh, a great visual representation. Um, it does not, I am aware that it does not work. Uh, it, 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 there's too much story for that three act structure. It, it definitely rushes through a lot of important stuff. There's stuff that's confusing. Um, Sting, uh, as the, the Harkonnen nephew, uh, is is you know you can't take your eyes off of him. It's pretty spectacular, but visually, and and I talk about visuals all the time here. Boba Fett, The Mandalorian, Darth Vader, um, Spider Man. I mean, whatever you're thinking of that you probably love, probably caught your attention visually first and foremost, and then that caused you to go beyond. That's why book covers, again, we don't talk about this enough, but but book covers are so important and, and getting it right. And that's why artists are asked to redo, whether it's a romance novel, whether it's a fantasy, a sci-fi superhero, because they know they get one shot at grabbing your attention to get you to reach over and lift up that um, that book and, and, and be sold. I did an entire podcast on how much I love Splinter of the Mind's Eye, what was really the first spinoff of Star Wars. And the cover of that book, as I've told you, has a very solid foreground, middle ground, background. Darth Vader is all the way in the background. He is almost blurry. He's out of focus. And Luke and Leia are in the foreground and Luke is clearly injured and struggling uh, it, the way he's putting weight on his arms and his shoulders. And, and this is from the back of Luke's head. You get the back of Luke's head and the black back of Princess Leia, but you, Leia's buns are so, that design of her hair is so, you know, iconic that you know exactly what you're looking for, looking at. And this gloomy forest, but, you know, the middle ground is this kind of stone temple, you know, floor and, and, and some rocks. And then there it is in the in the background, Darth Vader looming. I grabbed that book so fast before I could even, I just recognized these are Star Wars characters, just the backs of their heads. And Darth Vader is facing us, but he's so out of focus because he's so far away in the visual. Covers matter, visuals matter again and again and again. And I've made my life, I've paid my bills being an artist. So so I, I know 100% of what this is about. And, and the visual representation of David Lynch's um, Dune is fantastic. And... During this period of time, you know, uh, Marvel Comics had really gotten into the comic book adaptation business. They had done Star Wars, which famously, I have got two dedicated Star Wars podcasts on this. You should go listen to them. Marvel licensing podcast about how Star Wars saved Marvel. It cannot be, it's a story that's be told all the time. They were bleeding red ink. They were reluctant to do Star Wars. Stan Lee was not convinced. Roy Thomas, who was the um, second-in-command at the time, convinced, kind of overrode Stan's decision, put the green light on Star Wars, and the editor-in-chief that followed uh, years later, Jim Shooter, is on record with the publisher, Mike Hobson, at the time of Marvel, saying this saved the company. It put us in the black and gave us all the money that you can presume they invested in people like John Byrne and Frank Miller and Walt Simonson that created even more great comics for you. So Marvel knew what a killer uh, comic book adapt adaptation could do to their bottom line. They'd done Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They'd done Battlestar Galactica. They had adapted um, uh, 
they, they even adapted uh, they even adapted Xanadu, the Olivia Newton John, uh, uh, you know, musical that completely bombed at the box office. But the adaptation is pretty pretty snazzy. But uh, so they were coming up on uh, the idea that they could adapt this new big budget sci fi franchise and be at the forefront of it, just like they were with Star Wars. And so many people on staff at Marvel Comics were fans of uh, of of the Dune uh, uh, novel. Ralph Macchio talks that he picked it up in like 1965. I mean, I mean that, that this is two two years before I'm even alive. Okay, so I mean, these guys are are, are super duper fans. And let me tell you something: this comic book that I'm about to discuss with you is maybe I, I don't know how it isn't the best illustrated movie adaptation of all time. Bill Sienkiewicz is the most is it, again came up through comic books, did Fantastic Four. Uh, graduated from Fantastic Four to do the full-time Moon Knight uh, series, and, and you're going to get so much of what he brought to that in the Oscar Isaac Moon Knight series when that comes out on Disney Plus. That his work is going to be in a spotlight and 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 given a a uh, given a showcase that that you have never uh, seen for his work before. He went on to do a seminal run on the New Mutants. He pushed his art from pen and ink to one of the best. Uh, painters in, in the history of illustration, not just, uh, I mean, I, I put Bill up there with like, with, with, with Stedman and, and, and Drew Struzan and, and, and all of like the, the greats um, that, that of, of illustration beyond comic books, just beyond comic books. And uh, they did a number of different adaptations uh, for, uh, for, for just the way they like did Star Wars and, in the, in the way that they did uh, Battlestar Galactica, they, they, they would split it up into three monthly installments, okay? Uh, printed on newsprint, they did a magazine-size version uh, that told the whole story, and then they did a, a, a paperback um, adaptation, a, a smaller that could be marketed in the books in the bookstores. Well, uh, Bill, so he, Bill did a number of different covers as well um, in, in terms of adapting the work. But so the David Lynch Dune, which again is physic is 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 in many ways as visually arresting in its design, not in its scope. Denis Villeneuve's got there is money on that screen that is unimaginable in regards to how um, they spared no expense bringing us just a cinematic visual masterpiece. But in the costuming and the design, even so far as some of the worms, uh, David Lynch is right on the money again. Jodor. Jodo, Jodorowsky's Dune details again the visuals of this book were what enticed so many people. So Marvel hit it out of the, hit it out of the park getting Bill Sienkiewicz tapping him to do the adaptation. And again, when you're doing the adaptation, you have no idea if this is going to work. Dune was the bridge; it was the change up of the guard in the original Star Wars. When Howard Chaykin and he'll tell you the same thing, they send you photos, set photos, as many still photos as they as you can. But depending on whether you have the rights likenesses back in 1977 i'm not sure they did because i don't see a whole bunch of stuff that reeks of harrison ford and carrie fisher um and mark hamill but maybe that's just the interpretation that howard chaykin chose to go with but um but in something like like later down the line when empire strikes back comes around and al williamson it's less sporadic howard chaykin was a comic book artist with a definite style apparently a style that was so appealing to george lucas he hand picked him george wanted howard Chaykin from his Cody Starbuck and his uh, his his sci-fi work in comic books to to do Star Wars. Uh, 
there's a there's a little more of I'd say open to interpretation. More it, it, it the Star Wars adaptations feel a little more comic booky, but by the time they do Empire Strikes Back, three years later with Al Williamson, it's very much a collection of uh of still photography. Al Williamson is definitely kind of slicing and dicing shots from the movie and putting them in sequential order on a comic book page. And I don't, it's beautifully drawn, but it's not as exciting. Bill kind of lands the plane right in the middle, partially towards the Howard Chaikin, more kind of fluid storytelling, less beholden to just still photography and repeating shots in the movie. And giving you photorealistic depictions of these characters because Bill can draw like a mother. And 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 I mean, you, you will, I mean, Max Von Sydow looks like Max Von Sydow. Sting looks exactly, you know, exactly uh, like, like, like Sting does. And, and, uh, you know, um, through, throughout this, you're going to get some of the very, very, very best, uh, the, the very best, uh, kind of photorealistic renderings that, that you will ever, you know, possibly see in a comic book. The, the, I, I believe that the Bill Sienkiewicz Dune uh, adaptation and the comic books each have three different covers and they needed different covers for all the other adaptions. So there's like five covers overall that you can get. This is some of Bill's finest work. To tell it, him in his own words, Bill Sienkiewicz says of getting the assignment to adapt Dune. And again, they're doing this a year before the movie comes out, okay? So they don't know what the movie's going to be received, how it's going to be taken. Bill Sienkiewicz uh, says, I'd seen a lot of other movie adaptations. It's kind of a thankless gig because you're being regulated to basically the level of a Happy Meal, a cog in the merchandising machine that carries the film. You're dealing with rights, likenesses, and everything else. Sometimes I feel like what comic books can offer is a lot a lot of that creativity, he's saying, is actually overlooked. That's word for word. Um, Bob Budiansky, who was the editor at Marvel Comics, who was who had hired Ralph Macchio to write this and Bill Sienkiewicz to draw it, said, we're doing this months in advance of the movie premiering. Movie studios usually don't want to release any advanced copies of their movies to anybody. They want to keep it as secret as possible, but usually movie stills are more than enough, and if you're working with a good movie studio, they'll be very cooperative with you. This is, again, Bob Budiansky uh, speaking about the experience of it adapt uh, of adapting David Lynch's Dune into comic book form. Uh, they will usually get you everything you need, he says. If you need a shot of this character in the scene, they'll find it. Um, Bill Sienkiewicz again says, I flew out to California and I met with the PR people for the movie. The movie was in production, but we needed to get a head start. They gave me a bunch of color Xeroxes. They gave some images of the actors, but it was a constant struggle to keep getting as much reference as I needed. That is always kind of a thankless task. Bill believes that on Dune is where his style evolved to the point where it is today. I was trying out a bunch of different pen points. Part of it was an artistic, stylistic choice to break things down into shapes. I remember that I did several versions of the opening page of the desert. I did one with the sandworm on the horizon and another, which was just the moons and an actual sand dune. What I did on that one page, I realized there was more simplicity to it, and I really loved it. It just felt more austere. I liked the crispness of the more geometric shapes, but also partly because I was using different pen tips. I was... uh, but also partly because it was different pen tips I was trying. I realized I could actually approximate a circle or a curve by making a series of slow, short, sharp hash lines. The angular aspect was something I really found appealing. I also wanted something that would allow a decisive stroke. 
This is so great hearing Bill break down his artistic approach. I cannot tell you as an artist, this totally like turns me on. I am so turned on listening to Bill talk about his approach. Uh, <clears throat> the colorist, Christy Scheel, who colored the book, said Bill had really hoped to color this adaptation himself. A lot of times when comics artists want to color their own projects, they're terrible at it. But Bill started and he did a couple panels and a couple pages and they're just glorious, she says, uh, because Bill is such an accomplished painter. I can see why he quit it too because he was turning every panel into a full-blown painting and I couldn't measure up to that as he realized himself couldn't measure up to it and do it in under a year's notice. But it was a great way to launch for me, this is Christy talking, to see what Bill had done first. Um, Bob Budiansky speaks that they had deadline problems dealing with the movie studio when you have to get the work done on time and then you have to go in and get their approvals. And then they say, well, we want these changes and you have to then rush the artist to make the changes. I got off this train very fast. Um, this year I worked with a licensed property in terms of Snake Eyes. Hasbro could not have been, I can speak to my own personal experience, could not have been more um, agreeable. I was um, never, ever told that I was out of line. They said, go with this. We like your take on this. Your design will incorporate this. I even got a toy. They even made a toy out of one of my figures, one of my depictions of Snake Eyes in Snake Eyes Dead Game. So I really hit the lottery, but having done Battlestar Galactica, um, which they weren't that interested in and we didn't have likenesses of, they just kind of shrugged and were like, cool, cool, cool. But then I did Mission Impossible. I did a, did a bare minimum amount of work on the Mission Impossible comic book that came out in 1996. And it was just bone crushing um, uh, in, in the pressure and in the redos. And so I stepped away because that is just a, a thankless gig. And, and I wasn't doing an adaptation of Mission Impossible. They wanted me to do a side story a new story that wasn't on film, but they wanted me to adhere to all of the photorealistic. But again, you're you're working with very um, demanding actors. I did a Deadpool, uh, it, it, the most recent version, um, where I did a Deadpool movie poster for Fox that they gave out uh, with the DVD release at San Diego. And I drew, um, I drew uh, obviously Ryan Reynolds. Uh, I... Uh, I, I drew all of the the the, the primary actors um, and uh, Marina Bacharin, uh Ed Screen. I, I depicted all of them, and I drew Ryan as pre-disfigured Wade, so he looks just like Ryan Reynolds. And I drew, you know, disfigured Wade version of Ryan Reynolds. Um, and uh, I was asked to change, not Marina, um, and, it, and it was fine. And you know what? They 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 they. they uh, uh, we're not crazy. I believe, I don't know if it was Brianna or one of her representations, but I was just lucky that I had the, uh, Brianna Hildebrandt was lovely, but her representation did not think that I did her as well as I could have. And you know what? I knuckled down. I did a patch. I made sure that it would be something that she would be proud of. And I redid, uh, Brianna, um, Negasonic. And had to wait for a few days to get further clearance from whether it was her representation or her himself. Came back, flying colors, boom. I'm super happy that they spoke up and they because that makes you as an artist more, you know, happy and satisfied. But Ryan signed off, Morena signed off, Ed, every single actor had to sign off on the depiction, the, the, their depiction visually. So I know the weight that can go into this and I didn't do anything anywhere near remotely as detailed and demanding as what Bill Sienkiewicz has done with this Dune adaptation. Uh, in terms of the rush to make artists make 
changes that, that the editor Bob Budiansky says, Bill Sienkiewicz says, it was such a compressed and full deep dive into dealing with Hollywood for me for the very first time. It was a special project because there was so much buzz for it and the expectations for the film were very high. Ralph Macchio, who wrote it, says, I didn't have to do much in the way of rewriting. I know there were, th there were things they definitely wanted. There were certain sticklers that they wanted me to um, keep, but I don't remember it being absolutely horrible. I wanted very much to please them. They were the client, and I approached any of these projects that way. I always tried to be the professional, and even if things were fraying at the edges, I wanted to be the guy who was the team player and came through for everybody. Bill continues. He said, we had a conference call with the studio liaison, Budinsky, Bob Budinsky and I uh, were in the office, uh, sitting on the phone, uh, speakerphone. Uh, the coffee table was to my left, and and Bob was Bob Budiansky, the editor, was sitting next to me, and they went through every page, handing page after page, going over changes after changes. I mean, this can be arduous. Given this, when you see this Dune comic book, whether you get it in the magazine size, the individual three issues that Marvel published, um, or the the digest. It is a magnificent, a magnificent piece of work. Bill brings his unique design sense, storytelling sense, that incredible ability to draw likenesses, his incredible inking style, which is very unique to him and himself. Uh, that 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 he he talks specifically of the back and forth on uh, Vlad Baron Harkonnen, and he says uh, the studio liaison told Bill, "You've put too many postules on his face." And he says, this is Bill's own word, it became this bizarre haggling with the studio liaison. I said, look, I'll remove all the postules from his face if you just allow him, allow me to draw him 200 pounds heavier. It became literally that kind of negotiation. The reason this is interesting is Bill goes on to depict in a couple of years from now in a Daredevil graphic novel that Frank Miller writes, Bill depicts the kingpin. And the kingpin is like a thousand pounds. He is defined by this ridiculous oversized shape he is but that kingpin is the kingpin that you see in into the spider-verse and everybody into the spider-verse will tell you 100 that's bill sinkevich's kingpin that is 100 where we got that depiction that giant shape almost this this just shape this form so bill took his obsession with making Harkonnen so big and large and transferred it you can see how he did the kingpin in daredevil when you read this you go oh so he just put that if you just make him, let me do him 200 pounds heavier, Bill was dying to express himself artistically. And so he eventually does that with the kingpin and his depiction of the kingpin is literally adapted line for line into the Spider-Man, into the Spider-Verse um, version of the kingpin. Guaranteed money. Um, the executive editor of Marvel, Tom DeFalco, speaks that we sent the Dune comic book to the producers for their approval. They were very discombobulated by it. They said, we hadn't followed their story. <clears throat> I remember a group of us went directly to their offices to try and figure out what the problem was. They started talking about these scenes that we didn't have in the comics and scenes that we did have in the comics that were not in the movie. I was just completely befuddled because you cannot possibly do every scene that you're doing in an adaptation. You do not have a direct translation as a comic book adaptation. Um, Bob Bidiansky emphasizes that you want to be able to capture the feel of a movie. The writer is writing based on a script, but there's an economy of words in a comic book. You have to be able to boil it down so that the narrative is carried through visually and add words up without clogging up every panel. Uh, then Tom DeFalco says that they, we pulled out the script that they were, you know, that they had given us to work from. And they looked at it and they said, where'd you get this script from? This is word for word. Tom DeFalco says, as soon as they asked me that, I knew that the, there was a big problem. Tom DeFalco says, we got it straight from you. They pulled out another script and they said, 
as they were looking and comparing that it was two vastly different movies. They said to us, this isn't the current script. They had another script where they had written all over the previous script and in indicating that they weren't even done with shaping the movie. They basically said to us that they were rewriting the film in real time in the editing room and that they would and, and would never go back to the script that Marvel was dealing with. I mean, can you imagine the madness listening to the people who made this adaptation? Can you even imagine the madness that these guys are going through? And somebody as accomplished as Bill Sienkiewicz, who would go on to win every accolade, be praised as the great, magnificent, uh, seminal illustrator of his time that he is dealing with this because, you know, these bozos weren't keeping the comic book production people up to date. Um... Tom DeFalco says, if you want to try and get us closer, then just give us this script. We'll make the corrections that we can make. The clock is ticking. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll have a two to three week window to get the, this, you know, to get these comics out. And we, But we have to make our deadline. Uh, Bill Sienkiewicz then says, I sweated razor blades over producing the covers. It, they just weren't coming together. I hated them. I was pushing more and more into design elements of the movie poster. And when I turned it in, I felt like it was an absolute train wreck. It was one of those pieces when you look at it later, you realize, oh, okay, that was kind of a transitional piece for me. It was actually much better than I thought. You forget all about the sort of recriminations and accusations that you grow through when you're in the process of creating. Something where you, where all you see are the failures and the fight. I also did a couple versions of the paperback cover because they wanted me to move a couple things around. Again, this is all pre-digital. I had to paint a brand new piece every time to make a change. When I look back at it, I think they all work very well. Bob Budiansky, the editor, says, Bill did a great job of capturing, capturing not only their likenesses, but he turned them into actual Bill Kevich characters as well. It's this amazing alchemy that he's he can pull off. He made them very dramatic, and there's a gravitas attached to them. Bill did some of the most amazing covers for this. Uh, he then says, we all got to go to the, Bill Sienkiewicz says, we went to the movie premiere, my girlfriend was with me, Chris Claremont was there, and of course Chris Claremont was there, because that's the first time he saw the sandworm, and then ran back and put it in the new mutant special, so that Art Adams could draw Dune sandworms on Asgard in his X-Men Asgardian, um, you know, saga, which is one of the best X-Men sagas ever, it's the single best thing Art Adams ever did, but it has Dune sandworms in them, so I think it's funny that he's saying that Chris was there, because Chris is like, wow, sandworms, we can do this on Asgard. Uh, Bill Sienkiewicz says, I was super, super excited. The hair on the back of my neck was standing up because I had been involved in this project for months and months and months. I had so many high hopes for the films. I love David Lynch. There were things about the film I absolutely loved and I still love, but it was a mixed bag. It's not perfect, but I will always have bias in favor of it. Tom DeFalco says, I don't really recall the actual film. To be honest, I'm not sure I actually saw it. <laughs> Rob Macchio, the writer of the adaptation, says, there were... There may have been some flaws in the film, but it was something I was able to pass over. I thought the film was very striking. That's a great word. The movie is striking. And I have to say, I thought they did something very, very interesting with it. Bill Sienkiewicz wraps it up by saying, I felt that I accomplished what I set out to do, which was to show that comics can do film adaptations as opposed to being just the latest Happy Meal or Slurpee Cup. So much of the project was about battles, but to know that you're working with professionals who all have a similar vision and have your back. They're the people who make it all worthwhile. I am so incredibly proud of the Dune adaptation. And he should be. And I'm telling you, you guys should check it out. It is so beautifully rendered. Whatever issues you may have with the David Lynch film, if there was a, 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 an actual adaptation of, of Denis' film, I would, I would tell you, you should check that out. But above all, even, even if there was, even if there was, and, and let's say Alex Ross did it. I would still tell you to run, do not walk, run. Go find these Bill Sienkiewicz adaptations of the David Lynch 
Dune film. Google it, find it, locate it. They're on eBay. I've checked. They're all over the place in terms of pricing, but it is a magnificent piece of art. Bill is one of the very best illustrators to ever dabble in comics. That's how I see him. His covers, his work, um, his storytelling. He is one of a kind, and Dune is the best. Uh, if there if there's a rival, it is Walt Simonson's 1979 um, Alien adaptation and if you can get that original adaptation or you can get the i have a british version that is black and white shot um from 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 waltz pencils and inks but i would still give bill sinkevich the edge it is a brilliant uh piece of art and and again when he was talking about how he, he was coming up with different interpretations of the, of the splash pages you can see bill he's experimenting and, and and finding where he would end up during this process so Dune is a great movie that I hope that you saw at the theaters on the biggest possible screen. If not, that's fine. If all you want to do, and again, we're in a pandemic. We don't want to go out and be around other people. I get it. Not everybody's wearing masks. I get it. So hopefully before, uh, maybe 30 minutes earlier when you're like, why is life telling me to risk my life? I'm not. I've been to football games, basketball games. I've been to a lot of social events. I've been in big college arenas with 60,000 people in the last few weeks. I've traveled on planes. I've gone to New York Comic Con. I've been around 100,000 people. The world is restarting again. It's back up. We are functioning at the highest level that we've functioned in the last two years. So I would never ask you to put yourself in danger. But if you feel safe, and only you can tell if you feel safe, you should go see this in the biggest screen possible. And maybe while you're on HBO Max, click on that David Lynch wacky version that he took after turning down George Lucas to do Return of the Jedi. Isn't it funny how everything connects? And definitely look at your New Mutants special edition that Chris Claremont and Art Adams did that came out in the fall of 1985, and you will see Dune Sandworms. Um, but by all means, check out Bill Sienkiewicz's uh, and Ralph Macchio's Marvel Comics Dune adaptation. It's all Dune Day on the podcast. We love it. Here is the time in my show that I share with you guys. Uh, again, I, I could do Dune. Just I, I, I could just do Dune you know, all day long, all the time. I love it so much. But this is the time where we start to wrap up the show. And one of the things that I am able to do is I am able to read the wonderful and amazing, uh, very uh, generous, um, uh, 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 you know, um, reviews that you guys have been leaving for the show. And I'm, I'm, I'm always so appreciative. And uh, today... One of the very best reviews I've ever gotten. I'm going to read to you. And it's going to be brief. And this is today's review. It is brought to you by Mario94606. Okay? We need your reviews. We need your um, stars. We need your subscriptions. Word of mouth is carrying this show. Thank you so much again for spreading it. The reviews help. It helps with the platform. It helps that we have, um, we we've that you guys have got our back in the way that you have so consistently had this show's back from the very beginning and I appreciate all of your uh, support and I'm going to continue to just give this show my very best. I have so much, I have such a great time talking about comics and sci-fi and all of it with you guys. Mario94606 gave what I believe is maybe the best review I've ever gotten and here it is. Uh, the, the name of the review, because everyone puts a title on the review. You know, last week I got two that were called the best comics podcast, my favorite podcast. Okay, that's really nice. This guy, his, the name on his review, the title of his review is more. 
Okay, all caps, more. And he gave us five stars. Thank you, Mario94606. And after he puts more, his review of the show is, needs more cowbell. Needs more cowbell. And he is, uh, that's such an honor because he is invoking the great Christopher Walken in his uh, Blue Oyster Cult Saturday Night Live uh, skit where he he came out, and I'm going to do a terrible walking right now, but... (laughs) It needs more cowbell. This this needs more cowbell. As 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 uh, as Moister Cold <laughs> was was recording Fear the Reaper and uh, and and famously, if you go and check out that uh, uh, skit or you've, if you've already ingrained it into your memory, and my friends and I used to just completely go needs needs more cowbell. What this needs is it's more cowbell. Okay, so Will Ferrell then just leaned into that cowbell, but it's the greatest. Uh, compliment that you have asked that my uh podcast needs more cowbell i get it i'm gonna work on that that's gonna happen you guys thank you so much for listening to the show you can reach me on social media i'm on twitter at robert liefeld r-o-b-e-r-t-l-i-e-f-e-l-d i am on instagram at rob liefeld blue checks on both that's really me i love talking with you guys i love going back and forth i love exchanging ideas and excitement I'm all over Facebook. I'm in so many groups. It's ridiculous. I'm all over social media. I love hanging out with you guys. I love talking to you guys. Please continue to engage. I love it. Thank you for all the enthusiasm you sh- you um, give to the show. I appreciate it so 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 much. It is it is um it is always still shocking to me when I do the personal appearances and you guys want to talk about the show because sometimes I forget that I even did it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I have a podcast. So um this is the time of the show where you tell me that you are going to take care of yourselves. Um, and I believe you and you're gonna, and let's do that. And so continue to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon.